The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radio hour. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with Lydia Davis about her new book of stories called Our Strangers. I'm so excited about this interview. I'm a huge Lydia Davis fan. I've not read this current book, but will you tell me about it? Yes, it is, I would say, kind of a classic Lydia Davis collection. It has some stories that reminded me more of earlier works, more of like the break it down era. And then also the very short stories, like three line stories that are more recent. And also something sometimes that feels a little bit in between essay and story. And I've been really enjoying Lydia Davis's essays of late. So there's something in it for everyone. And I was very, very moved by many of the stories here, especially the title story, which devastated me and which I've read a number of times. And it's all about the relationship between neighbors, which is actually something that I've been thinking about and writing a little bit about myself for many years. So I was kind of thrilled that Lydia and I were on the same wavelength on that one. And it's such a beautiful story. Different vignettes of neighbors relating and all the intimacies, the strange intimacies that occur. Wow, that sounds really good. Though I think as a general rule, I try to ignore my neighbors as much as possible. (laughs) (laughs) You and most people. Yeah. And one of the things about this book is that has really been publicized a lot is that It is not and will not be available for purchase on Amazon. It is published exclusively to be sold at independent bookstores. Yes, exactly. It has a a moral shimmer to it as well. And I I think it's a, a great decision. And Lydia is lucky to be in a position where she can do something like that and stand up. And let's hope it's a trend that catches on and sticks it to the man. Let's stick it to Bezos. Stick it to Bezos, baby. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyways, it's a great book on top of that. So let's get to the interview. Let's do it. I'm so happy to be speaking with the writer and translator Lydia Davis today. Lydia Davis is the author of seven collections of stories, including Break It Down, Varieties of Disturbance, Almost No Memory, and Can't and Won't. And she is recognized as one of the most groundbreaking and singular practitioners of the form at work today. She is also the author of a novel, The End of the Story, two expansive books of collected essays, various chapbooks, and numerous translations from French, as well as Dutch and German, including Marcel Proust's Swan's Way and Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary. She has received the Man Booker Prize, a MacArthur Genius Award, a Penn Malmood Award, and many other honors. And on a personal note, she's also one of the first people I ever interviewed for LARB over a decade ago, so it's really exciting for me to have a chance to talk to her again. 
She joins me to speak about her latest book of stories entitled Our Strangers, which was published last week and will notably not be available on Amazon, which we'll talk about. The book collects well over 100 stories, with many measuring at just a few lines. The stories take a variety of forms, sketches of interactions from daily life, letters of complaint, recorded anecdotes, sequential interludes, grammatical inquiries, meditations on passing thoughts and fantasies, as well as more sustained looks at life in a small country town and the intimacies we share with our neighbors. Regardless of the form or length, though, the stories in Our Strangers return to abiding themes of death, aging, illness, friendship, mutual care, discontent, nature, and the life of women with striking insight, humor, and an ever-present curiosity. Thank you so much, Lydia, for being here. It's a pleasure. So I thought, you know, let's just start with the elephant in the room, which is how you managed to release this book without Amazon and how that came about that you decided not to put it on Amazon. Elephant is a very apt comparison. (laughs) The elephant that's walking around among all the little mice. It took me longer than I would have thought to realize that I didn't want my own books to be published by Amazon. I have not bought anything from Amazon through Amazon for many, many years. But it took the example of Dave Eggers a couple of years ago to make me realize, oh, I could make that move. I could avoid Amazon. He avoided Amazon for the initial release of his book, The Every, and sold it only through independent bookstores, I think, for the first few weeks in the hardcover edition. And that was just when my second book of essays was coming out, and it was much too late for me to do anything about that. But I vowed at that point that the next book I published would be without Amazon, Amazon's involvement, even if I didn't publish it at all. <laughs> I was absolutely not willing to let them handle it. So against them for their anti-community behavior, undercutting of independent bookstores, which has been just devastating, and many other things I could go into. So I, I kind of sat on that decision for a while. And then I approached my agent because she would be very involved in this and it would reduce her income as well as my income because that's the way it is. I think Amazon is the seller of over 50% of books, maybe over 60% of books in the U.S. But to my delight, she was completely on board with this. She was as against Amazon as I was. And she was actually enthusiastic. She saw this as an adventure and something exciting. So she first had to take it to my then publisher for our Strauss and Giroux, who had been my publisher since the mid-80s. So this was quite a diversion or change. They could not, they did try to think how they could sell it without involving Amazon. They could not. And she took it to a few other large publishers and they could not avoid Amazon. Some of them didn't even want to dare because they were afraid of repercussions because Amazon is a great one for retaliating. And so she went to Andy Hunter to talk about it, just to talk about the situation. And he, being the founder of bookshop.org, was certainly very attuned to 
alternatives to Amazon. And then to her surprise and to my surprise, he says that he wanted to publish it himself, even though it meant this was his first, the first print publication of his first sort of new publishing venture. He created a publishing venture to publish it. So that was also very exciting. And have you seen, you know, in the first week that the book has been out, any kind of numbers of what you're missing out on? Or has anyone explained to you, you know, all oh, of the sales could have been this, but instead they've been this? Have you felt the repercussions of it immediately once the book was published? No, that'll be interesting to find out. Again, I'm fully prepared to have lower sales or whatever. I never paid a whole lot of attention to sales anyway. I mean, that kind of following that, tracking that makes me nervous. So I won't have much to compare it to, but I'm so pleased with having made that decision that it's fine with me if sales are, you know, half what they would have been. We were published in, in England and the English publisher Canongate was also completely on board with this. And various other foreign publications have been no problem at all because the situation is different in different countries. France supports independent bookstores and doesn't allow underpricing. So there we are. Their government wants there to be many independent bookstores and thinks it's important for their culture and their society. I think it's a really important step, and I, I hope more people follow suit. Maybe you could tell me, there are many, many stories in this collection about what period were they written over? Well, they really do. Let's see, it's been nine or 10 years. Say it's been nine years since my last collection of stories was published. And longer than that, of course, since the stories in that book were written. But they're also, so the, all the stories collected here in Our Strangers are from at least the last 10 years. But also I brought some forward from many more years ago that were maybe languishing 90% finished. So that was actually one way I, I organized the book. Initially, I departed from it, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll organize it sort of chronologically, not by when the stories were written, but by the periods of my life that they came from. That was at least a starting place for trying to put these many stories in some kind of order. Then, of course, I switched them around a little bit after that. So they were some of them were written or were based on incidents even decades ago. The title story, I have to say, really undid me both times. I read it and I was and I love it. And I was afraid to read it more because I would kind of erupt into sobs each time. But that does kind of touch on life in the country and life in the city. And I get a sense in this collection of also of you kind of coming to the country, the initial shock of it, of moving away from the city and then and living in a small town. I'll get back to that. But I, I want to talk about Our Strangers, that story in particular. And I'm curious when you started noticing the relationship between neighbors that you write about in that story and just kind of how it came about? That was written over time, too. So some of the stories or sections in there refer to, yes, my city life, my life in the city, which one of them about taking in dry cleaning from the people next door 
It goes back to when I was a student, when I had just graduated from college, I think, and was living for the first time sort of on my own. I think I had roommates who came and went. But so that goes way back. And so sections of theirs are, they span a long time. So then I would have been in my 20s. And then there's some where I was in my 30s, living in the country for the first time. And where I live now is a different place. But so then I get caught up with stories from where I'm living now. It's a very strange situation where you are put down among strangers or the strange, I guess they settle around you or you in the midst of them. And then they become either friends or bitter enemies. <laughs> There's a lot of fighting over property lines in a lot of places. But there are other places where the neighbors are very supportive and kind to each other. So it's just a, an odd, odd sort of situation that I find intriguing. And once I'd begun telling stories about them, I thought of more and more stories. Most of them are from my life, but some are from friends' lives also. It struck me that, which I've thought about in my own neighborhood, the kind of strange position of being close to someone, you know, physically, but having certain kind of socially observed distances that we all have to adhere to. But then that proximity either breeds a very tender kind of intimacy or contempt. I also like in your in your story the way that you track the, that it can change. Because I think we often think of these things set in stone, but there's a, a kind of beautiful shift between these neighbors where they've had, you know, tensions over the years and then one becomes sick and suddenly the neighbors who didn't get along are attending to this man and checking up on him. And that's really striking. Yes. And another example, neighbors down the road, I think they were not getting along and then they did begin getting along and they were became quite close, but then something else happened in, in the lives of the life of one of them. And she behaved in a way that angered the neighbors again. So now they're not anymore. It is touching and I mean you have such trouble even choosing where to live or deciding where to live. And then you can't sort of interview your neighbors in advance and say, Oh gosh, I'm never gonna get along with this thing, so I won't move here. You know, when you first did move from the city to the country, I wonder what that was like having grown up in New York and spent so much time there to then be in a more rural area and how it affected your work or your life. Well, it wasn't as much of a change. I mean, where I am now, this is more of a change. But to go back to that first time, we didn't live there all that long. It's under two years, and then we were back in the city. But also, I had had a taste of country life because I went to boarding school. I went to the Putney School in Vermont for three years, and so it was it very much a country life, although not like in a country town. But where I am now is really much more of a change. It's a village out in a very rural area. So it's all those preoccupations are different. I mean, I just came from a visit to the city today. I was there last night. So different. So different. I'm glad to be home. 
I love New York City, but it's so charged and so electric and so busy and so full of different stories crisscrossing at a kind of hectic rate. The country has its people with each with their stories, but just quieter as you'd expect. Fewer people per square mile or per acre and much more vegetation, which vegetation is one of my great interests now. So even in the city, I kind of stare at the weeds that are coming up in the cracks because any kind of vegetation interests me. Just a slower pace, which does make a difference. I read um, a piece that you wrote on Bernadette Mayer after she passed and you two happen to be neighbors and you write that the town where you lived in is a little random place having its own firm and unexceptional reality and history. And yet it, it seems that you have written very much about where you live. So do you think that you would write about wherever you lived or is there something particular about the specific town in which you live, which grabs you? Well, really, I think I would I would write about wherever I lived. I've given a lot of thought to this, too. I know the people here. I'm on the, the village board, actually, and it's coming up for 10 years that I've been on the village board. So I'm very involved in what goes on here. And then I think, well, I know so-and-so and so-and-so, and I know these roads, and I know this intersection. But if I had moved to a small village or small town in Iowa, then I would know that person, this person, that person, and know those roads and know that problem with a landfill or that problem with a quarry and appreciate the people in the same way, so-and-so's sense of humor and so-and-so's um, rigidity about this or that, the laws or whatever. So I really relish the particularity of the place I live. But I recognize that if I lived somewhere else, I would relish the particularity of that place. And that's a strange thought, because then you extrapolate from that and say, at this very moment, out in a small town in Iowa, the town clerk is preparing the minutes to send out to the board, and she's going out to feed her horses in the morning or whatever it might be. And it's happening everywhere, the same same sort of various people doing different things, their different characters. So it's it's a little overwhelming to think about. It's really remarkable to me that you and Bernadette Mayer happen to become neighbors and to live in such a, a small village of, I think you say, 584 people or something like that. And how you two are, you know, you have so many commonalities as being different arms of the avant-garde, both being around the same age, having both been from New York, and then also so many differences. And it's it's really amazing that you did live together. And I wonder what that was like for you to have her as a neighbor, how it brought you to her writing, or if you shared things about your lives as writers together, or if it was much more just, you know, she was any other neighbor in your town. Well, she didn't live, even though it's a small small village. She didn't live right in my neighborhood, which makes a difference. But it's totally by chance. I didn't really know her before. I had met her once at St. Mark's, I think just once, just briefly, we were introduced and went on. 
are different ways. And I wasn't even aware she lived here for a while. I forget how long that was. And then I, I felt very good about it. We never became fast friends, but I would go over to their house. She came here. We had friends in common, of course, inevitably. And they had a party every summer that I would go to. And we had good relations, as I say in the article. They had a source for raw milk, so they would tell me when they had an extra half gallon of raw milk for me, and I would go over there and get the raw milk. And not exactly in exchange, but after my book club had finished reading a book of poetry, which we do regularly, I would take them the book of poetry. They didn't have it already. So we had this little gentle exchange of raw milk for poetry. I already knew her work and really, really liked it a lot. It was extra little bonus for me after I lived here that she was writing often about the place where I lived too. So that was, and I'm told that there's something in one of her later poems about Lydia and the raw milk, but I haven't found it yet. So that was that was just very nice. We did give a reading together just before COVID kept everybody indoors and not gathering. So down in the city of Hudson, which is about 45 minutes from here, we read together. That's sort of the readers from East Nassau. Wow, it's a really on the map for its writers, if nothing else. It's funny, another story that kind of, I thought addressed the strange you know, extra intimacy and yet total anonymity of neighbors is, um, pardon the intrusion. Just like comically so, hilarious, both, you know, in the strange way that people, that kind of, you get all these weird grammatical ticks of online writing or listserv writing, but the things that people are asking for from each other are totally insane. That was a lot of fun to put together it was over a long time because it was, I don't know how many years, a few years, because I'm on that listserv. And whenever there was a good one that came along, I would sort of collect it in one place. I like the oddity, as you say, that there's sort of insane requests, but they all make sense, again, to that person for the, in that situation. Any recommendations for a local and reliable tuck pointer? I don't even know what a tuck pointer is. Or um, Zither found a home, thank you. And then several about turtles. I'm looking for an adoptive family for this turtle. I did a lot of rearranging the order of them, but it didn't change the wording much. Sometimes, I mean, I liked the way they were written, some of them slightly ungrammatically. I liked it. And let's see, free rooster to a good home. Beautiful, if a bit cocky. Five months old, Americana. Hello all from a notary. I am a notary in need of a notary that can notarize a quick claim deed. So I was hoping to find one about the very pregnant bride who needed a large, sturdy chair for the wedding ceremony. Oh, that was funny. There's also one about just... I need like six bricks. Yes, that's what I ended with. I'm just looking at that. Does anyone have six clean bricks? Well, you know, if they're dirty, she could wash them, you know? <laughs> so they have to be clean. So I sort of put it together a little bit the way I put together the cows piece. 
which is not in this book. But that was also accumulated over time, observations of the cows. So this one, the same way, I just kept collecting them. I think probably at first because I just found them so funny. I wasn't intending to do anything with them, but I just put them together in a file. Is that how you normally kind of make a story is over time and just letting lines accumulate or you've talked about writing the Our Strangers story, kind of letting little vignettes accumulate over time and then putting them together? Um, or is there another way that I'm, I'm missing that you work? Oh, no, there, but there's no one way. So with these, like the cows and, and this one, pardon the intrusion, they sort of had to accumulate over time. In other words, I, I needed that many observations or that much material before I would have a substantial story. But with most of the others, they're written right away. The idea comes, or most of the piece just comes right away. And then I might let time pass and let them sit there before I think they're, they sort of have to ripen in the sense that I have to get a little distance from them, read them again. Like, oh, that little part is a little weak or it needs more. It needs something more. I'm not sure what. And I let them sit. In that sense, time plays a part. But they're sort of 90% done when, when they're sitting around waiting. So as much as you can you know, differentiate, would you say that the story comes in form or is it ever that you have a story and you search for a form? Does the story exist apart from form for you and you kind of need to find the right container or is it always a simultaneous container and story? Usually they're born together. The story asks for a certain form and that's its final form too. But sometimes, particularly the one, the very shortest ones with broken lines, sometimes I realize, I realize that, that I have to break the lines more and the lines even shorter. I'll give an example of one that went through some changes. It's very short. It's called a question for the writing class concerning a type of furniture. And I'll just read, well, I'll read the final form and then I'll talk about it. It's five lines of very short lines. Can you create a tragic scene in which you mention the bibelots and whimsies on the whatnot? Now, this really originally started with only the whatnot. That was the point. Can you create a tragic scene in which you mention a whatnot? Because that's the type of furniture that find it so odd, just the name. So. That was sort of an almost a sincere question. We have a tragic scene, and we're not involving the word sofa or chair or door. We're talking about a whatnot. And then I got maybe too carried away and thought, I like the word be below because it's, again, so old-fashioned and weird. It's for the little trinkets that you might have in your whatnot. And then I was reading something that mentioned the word whimsies as also the same kind of thing, a little trinket. A whimsy is a trinket. And so then I went maybe too far. This would be an example of me going too far and revising too much. 
are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Lydia Davis, author of Our Strangers. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Hillary Leichter on the line with us today. Her new book is called Terror Story. It's a novel, and she is going to give us a book recommendation. Hillary, what book are you going to recommend? I would love to recommend Worry by Alexandra Tanner. It is out in March 2024, and I had the pleasure of reading an early copy, but it's available for pre-order now, and I have never read anything like it. It's about two sisters living in Brooklyn in the same apartment, but it's also about the internet and obsession and how to make a life in this very zany world that we live in. And it is funnier than anything I've read this year. It's so good. How did you come upon it? I had the honor of of writing a blurb for the early copies of the book, and I was just blown away. I read the whole thing almost in one sitting and it is truly subversive and diabolical and will make you laugh until you cry. Hillary, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Worry by Alexandra Tanner. Okay, I hope people pre-order it. We've been speaking with Hillary Leichter. Her new book is called Terra Story. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Lydia Davis, author of Our Strangers. How about a story like Addie and the Chili? Did that arrive all at once or is there accuracy in the way the story is written that it you really are recording this arc of the creation of a story where you tried to write a story at the time. It didn't take off. Years later, you see it there and you think, how can I complete this story? And so you kind of have to retrace the initial incident. And there's actually a real verisimilitude between what you're writing and how the process went. Yeah, in fact, you're right. I mean, the process is incorporated into the story. The story not only tells the story of the chili and Patty and the other two women, but also how the story came into being. So the first paragraph or so, a little bit more, was added later. Okay, this is how I tried, why I tried the story, and how I tried it didn't work out. Then you have most of it is the story probably fairly close to what I actually did right years ago as the story. And then after the end, really, there's a sort of coda in which I say, now I've asked Ellie, because she was the one who asked me to write the story. So there's a sort of coda that says, well, I now I've asked her, but she's forgotten all about it. So there's a sort of update or a sequel to the story happened. Ellie asked me to write about it. I tried. It didn't go well. I've done it now, but now Ellie's forgotten about it. And can I ask, is that true? Like, is there an Ellie who actually did forget the story? Because there's a really hilarious, I mean, it's funny in a really dry way, but it's so funny, this story about seeing a heron on the road and the narrator's talking to her husband 
the narrator wants to name the story something, but there has to be a truthful element she feels like she has to reveal why the story is named what it is, even though the title doesn't actually bear out as something that happened. And then the husband kind of chides her, like, you know, you can make something up. And then she says, oh, I know I can. But then she gives another example of how she could be honest about what happened. And it's so funny for a fiction writer to have this in the frame. And I felt that there was something very truthful in it about the way that you compose stories. Not that they have to be true, but there has to be a certain clarity to process to them, that that is very important to you. Yeah. I mean, to go back for a second to add in Chile, there was an, an Ellie character who did, who did ask me to write the story and who did not remember our mutual friend. So I guess I enjoy incorporating actual real life material when I can, when it's suitable, when I find it interesting, when it fits the story. The other one you're talking about, Heron in the Headlights, I enjoyed incorporating, I mean, this was in the form of two dialogues a week apart. And in fact, it was not my husband, but my brother, which is, you know, I forgive you for thinking it was my husband because most of my conversations about the stories would be with my husband. But this happened to be with my brother. He lives in the city, so he likes wildlife reports from the country. So it starts, you know, any wildlife reports. It's all dialogue. And he's the one who says, you know, call it Heron in the Headlights. And I say, well, it was broad daylight. I can't call it Heron in the Headlights. Then he says, writers don't have to tell the truth. Well, I know that, but, you know, it's amusing that he makes that pronouncement. And then I say, but actually I could call it that. And then say the headlights weren't actually on. And then he says, you didn't hear me. I said, writers don't have to be honest. I was being provocative. And then we go on talking. But then I call it Heron in the Headlights and explain that it was. So I do what I say. I do, as I compose the story in its finished form, I do actually what the story says I might do (laughs) the characters in the story. And I think with this book, I actually crossed that line a bit more than I had before, either commenting on other stories or giving another version of the story or sort of revising the story right in the middle of the story. It's kind of fun. I was reading a a lecture from the essays one, and you were talking about being a writer who, you're talking about Grace Paley and being inspired by her and kind of becoming a writer who would take almost everything from her life for her work. But it also struck me that I wouldn't necessarily call you an autobiographical writer per se, but yes, exactly that. I do feel that your stories come from life and almost completely come from Life, But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that distinction, taking from life, but yet not being autobiographical per se. Yeah. And I should say that they vary. Some are factually pretty close to incidents in my life. And some are a mix of fact and fiction, because as soon as you compose a story, meaning, you know, arrange the parts of it, arrange the pace of it, the proportions then you misrepresent life a little bit anyway. I mean, even if you are taking everything, all the incidents or the 
details from life, it's going to be a little different than when you when the tone of the narration is not what your tone would be conversationally. You're also distancing it from your own life. But then some some stories in here, there's one called Incident on the Train, and I surprised someone very much last night by telling them, this was happened to be the publisher of the book, Andy Hunter, by telling him, well, actually, everything in that story was made up. Not a bit of it was <laughs> taken from my life, except that I sat on the train thinking about what if this happened and then that happened and then I, I probably began writing it on the train, but none of what happened on the train actually happened on the train. And I was very pleased to see how surprised he was because it meant that I could write something entirely fictional that still had the ring of, of having been taken from my life. So... I don't know if it's technically, maybe it is autobiographical. I mean, here's a very short one, Fear of Age. It's only two, two lines. At 28, she longs to be 25 again. And so that's autobiographical in the sense that I just recently was reading through a journal of mine, which I have to do these days, from when I was 28, or maybe I was 29, and I but I longed to be like 24 again. So there it was, sort of the germ of the story. But then you put a title on it, you name it, you formalize it by putting it in a book. It's not me talking anymore, and it was me talking a long time ago, but it's not me talking anymore in that sense, that persona. And it's also abstracted in form. I mean, it's not, it doesn't pinpoint autobiographical details from the moment when you were 28, where you were, who you were married to, what you were doing, you know, it's, it becomes formalized and more universal. Yes, it's isolated. It's isolated from all the autobiographical context. So maybe we could say it that way, that it's, it takes from my life, but it's isolated formally, on the page it's isolated, the biographical context is gone. So here's another one very short. How sad, how sad am I really? Only one of my eyes is weeping. So again, that's isolated. It was a moment, I guess, when when I noticed only one of my eyes was weeping. But it's, you know, could be anyone. As you say, it's universal. Yeah, I, as much as your work is taken from life, but then kind of universalized, I do notice a shift that I read a very good piece about by a critic named Maggie Doherty, speaking about kind of the earlier work, which is so much about obsession. You know, Break It Down is one of my absolute favorite books, and the narrator of many of the stories seems obsessed, obsessed with a love affair. And I think that's why I related to it so much. And same with the end of the story, I mean, which gets drawn out and a bit more absurd but it's the same. There's an obsession with a person and maybe a kind of underlying anxiety. And then I think the work really shifts over time to instead of obsession, being much more focused on a kind of curiosity and an openness to things outside of oneself, which would make sense, you know, from a younger person's life 
where there's much more drama in love and life, perhaps to a more settled life where one can sit and repose and think. But I wonder if that's something you've noticed about your own work, this very strong shift away from kind of an earlier tone to a later one. Maybe. It's much harder for me to look from the outside and see changes. I guess if I went back and reread some of the stories and break it down, I might see that. I mean, I'm aware of the sort of changes over time. Formally, there are changes in the forms of my stories over time. There's certainly, when I was really young, I never would have written a story that had only two lines because like, somehow that wait, that's not permitted, you know. You're much more conservative in a way in some aspects when you're that young. I know I was much more self-involved when I was when I was that young. So I was creating stories that I cared about artistically as pieces of literature, but I was more self-involved. But as I'm trying to think back at the stories, I think they were more from the imagination rather than from my own life. I'll have to go and look for the obsessiveness that you talk about. I, I've always been what people would call obsessed, meaning sometimes just extremely focused on something, pursuing something, but also just observing something, the minutest details of something. So to me, that isn't obsessive so much as just very close focus. I was thinking about that on the train today. I was on the train again, coming back from the city. And if I'm going to look at someone, I enjoy looking very closely at them. A mole on the neck, you know, the earring or whatever. If, if I'm listening to them, I want to listen closely. And I see some of that observational detail in Pirhanke's diary selection. There's a selection of his notebooks or diaries. I think it's called The Weight of the World. He has wonderfully close observations in there. So I don't know what the dividing line between obsession. I guess obsession is when you, like in my novel, when you she's clearly obsessed by the, the lover that she has lost. So I guess it's when you pursue and you relentlessly I and mean, you don't give up on something. Yeah, or in the first story of Break It Down, which I think is just called Story, it's a reflection on what happened, kind of parsing these details over and over, and which I think on a meta level is very interesting because, you know, it's a story about a story, but the story is also the story she's telling herself about what happened with her lover. And I mean, that's why it reaches the level of art and it's so affecting because you can relate to it on so many levels. And it does seem like, you know, that is a different character than someone who would look and see a little bug and then start to observe the way, you know, the ladybug turns over. I don't think the narrator of that first story and break it down would have time to see the ladybug. She's thinking about the guy. She wants to know what happens with him. So that's the kind of shift I'm talking about, which is, which, you know, seems true somehow to stages of life, even if it's not autobiographical per se. Yeah, I was trying to think about that a little actually before. There are a few insects in this book and observations of the insects are little mini stories about them. And I was thinking about that very thing that, you know, when you're young and you're in and out of love affairs or whatever, jealousies and, or happiness, and 
and also maybe living in the city, you can put those two together, then it's harder to pay a lot of attention to an ant or well, I did have a story about cockroaches in one of my early books from Living in the City, but those are more striking and difficult insects. Things are quieter in the country, so insects are more presence. I certainly thought the cockroaches had a lot of character and personality when I lived with them in the city. But, you know, it sounds funny to say I have great respect for insects, but I have respect that they are just as caught up in their lives as I'm caught up in my life. It's funny to think about that, but they are. The world revolves around them, and they're, they don't care that much about me. So I just find that fascinating. And the same piece that I read by Maggie Doherty, she kind of talks about you in conjunction with other female writers and kind of lumping you all together, but mentioning feminism, mentioning a woman's perspective. And I was wondering if that's something you ever think about in your own writing, kind of, there's a couple stories in here that um, Young Housewife is one, and a couple more, I think maybe one called, one called Tantrums, that I feel like has a, a slightly more abject female perspective. And even in the story, Learning to Sing, I feel like there's this kind of, I mean, I don't have to put it to the fact that she is female, but it seems like that is a part of it. And she feels this need to perform, to do well, to change her posture, to be this, to have a beautiful voice, not to want too much attention, all these things. And then the coda of the story is seeing a woman who's older, who doesn't care at all and who sings freely and who doesn't seem to have any of the same hangups. And it's... um. And even another story, which I couldn't quite figure out the tone of, which was, and maybe I'm wrong in reading it this way, was a person asked me about lichens. Because I felt like that story, it seemed very female and that someone just casually says, oh, hey, like, do you know about lichens? And suddenly she goes on this whole endeavor and learns everything she can and is doing good and trying to know about lichens. And by the end, she says, oh, if someone asks me again next year, I'll be able to say truthfully, I do know about lichens. It seemed like the arc of it was was very that the woman who's narrating it is very responsive. And in another breath, I could say, oh, it really, it comes out of an interest that you have in nature. And I heard it that way as well, completely just narrating this kind of story of discovery. But I could also see it in the other light, that it's hard just to say, no, I don't, and not care, and leave it at that. And also, sorry to make this question so massive, but then, and I also read online that your mother was something of a proto-feminist and political and a communist. And so this also seems like this was already the woman's movement was something you were encountering very early in your life. So I, I was just curious about that. I was looking to find a, a person asked me about lichens and I knew it was one unbroken paragraph that goes on and on and on, which I sometimes really resist in other people's writing. But that's the way I could find it was there's no paragraph breaks and it's much longer than I thought of it being when I wrote it. It's like five or six or seven pages, which is crazy, all in answer to the question about lichens, you know. So I think what you're picking up in 
maybe in the learning to sing story is wanting to please in one sense or wanting to do well, be well, what you're supposed to be doing. The other two you mentioned, the housewife and the tantrums, come from early motherhood. And I uh, had a very different feeling about myself as a woman when I was that young than I do now. That's really changed over time. I mean, I was the same person. It's, it's confusing to think about. But I think I was pigeonholed in a different way when I was that young. And that affected my own feeling about myself. And then learning to sing, that's a relatively recent story. And it's a mixture because it's true that I wanted to measure up, but not, it was for better motives. It was sort of, it was because I truly did want to sing nicely. I mean, not to please someone else, but just because I love singing, that's really beautiful to listen to. And my own singing wasn't beautiful to listen to. I really had hopes, you know, producing a nice, a nice sound, which I never was able to do. <laughs> so the woman at the end in the coda, and that was written a little bit after, by the way, it ended, the story ended before that. And then I, I guess I experienced, I, I belonged for a while to a ukulele group. You, you know, you're free to laugh at this if you want to, because I think it's funny. But a ukulele group formed at my local library, and I thought, that would be fun. So I did that for a while. So this was the woman in the ukulele group who would sing us a song that she liked and say, let's learn this one. And as I say in the story, she just had this sort of screechy voice. It was just the voice that you know, I would have never dared to expose to anybody. But she opened my eyes to, okay, why not? Why not? You know, you, people around you will tolerate it, enjoy it. My mother was a proto-feminist. I would have to, if I'm really going to answer, I should go on to the lichens one. But I'll depart of digress for a minute with my mother. She, she was a very forceful woman. And I felt very fortunate that my family was not a problem in that sense. My father did not look down on women. And my mother stood up for herself and was uh, influential on my father. It was sort of a pretty equal. I didn't have to battle that in my own home growing up. I felt that my father respected my writing. and They both respected it, and wanted to hear it, wanted to read it, wanted to talk about it. And similarly, my friends, the groups of writer friends that I moved around with in my 20s also were very respectful of women's writing, the women among us, you know. There was no sense of, oh, the boys' writing is more interesting or, okay, we'll listen to her story about blah, blah. But there's still the outside world would pay more attention to, to the guys than the women. So that was impressive. But about this lichen story, I mean, it, the fact that it's, you know, six or seven pages with no paragraphs is, suggests sort of a rush of, well, I didn't know about lichen, so I knew about this and knew about that, but I didn't know about lichen. Then I, I know this a little bit about lichen. So she's just racing through. So you get that feeling a little bit, but really it wasn't self-justification as sort of so much as me just taking the theme and running with it like mad. 
and having a lot of fun. It was actually the person asking me was was putting together a, a magazine issue or an anthology about lichens. So he was hoping I had written something about lichens or that I would write something about lichens. And in fact, I'd never written anything about them. But I made the occasion of his asking me into the start of the story so that I could give him a story about lichens. I just thought it would be just be fun to do. So that's what I did. Uh, I see. Yeah, without that detail, it does seem like, God, let this poor lady just do what she's doing. She doesn't need to get a PhD in lichens. Like she was already interested in so many things. Yeah, it's okay if she doesn't like know anything about lichens. But in this particular case, I wanted to fulfill a certain request. And that was the person. But it was fun. Yeah, I love that story. And I do think that tone is, it's, interesting not to quite be able to put my finger on what a story is trying to do. I think that I appreciate that as well. I guess, you know, maybe this is a heavy question to close on, but, you know, the book is so much about aging, death, illness. I mean, as I'm saying that in very tender ways, like our strangers, which, as I was saying, really touches me and makes me feel as though, you know, we're never alone, we all take care of each other, or that doesn't undercut the the mourning and grief and pain, but that we have a witness. I mean, it kind of comes full circle. But then there's other stories that seem a little less resolved, I would say, and kind of hang there and hang in some of the existential, you know, uncertainty around death. I was curious if writing in your own life has been a solace for these types of questions, if being able to put down these types of worries or passing thoughts, even repurpose them, have a place for them in your work, has helped with these kind of struggles that we all go through, if you found that through your writing at all, or if it's just kind of a parallel practice to these deeper questions that we all struggle with and there's just no way to alleviate them? Well, when I look through the book, even though the impression may be that there are a lot of stories, but there actually actually aren't that many. There are a few, but there are so many others about, you know, music selection of the day or the seed that turns out to be a bug going about its business or that our young neighbor with this little blue car and the construction work of the wasp and the recurring there are two about turnips <laughs> anyway there there's so many others but maybe in earlier collections there were almost none about yeah i think it i write about it the same way that i mean it's more on my mind because you know as you go older get older you, you know it gets closer inevitably my mother lived to a good old age, and it was pretty good. But still, you get closer. So it's the big challenge. How can I reconcile myself to this? You know, you can sort of ignore it when you're young, unless you're very unlucky in, and people are dying in your life. But then you can't ignore it as you get older. Either your friends die or your family die. It's hard. Because I always want a way to accept things. I don't want to just not be able to accept something that is inevitable. So it's a challenge. I'm not 
sure that I think writing helps only in the way that writing helps with everything. If I see the wasp chewing on my bench, I want to write about him. I want to write something about him. And that sort of, I need that. If material comes along that is provocative to me or pleasing to me, and I want to make something out of it. And in the same way, the death, it's a little harder to write about death, but I want to in the same way. So it's it's not just a comfort, it's more positive than that. I got to be friends with an old woman here in her 80s or her late 80s, and I hadn't known her very long before she died. And I was very startled and very in a new way, I felt, what a loss this is. You know, this woman had so much in her mind and her character. And she was so ripe and mature and developed. You know, over all these years, she developed like into this wonderful thing. And now it's just gone. What a waste. What a loss. It's hard to explain because any death, is, you know, it's a loss. But... It just suddenly seemed to make no sense. You develop, you sort of develop a person like a work of art until the person is just wonderfully rich and just many faceted, and then they go. So it doesn't make sense. (laughs) And yet we have to. That was what was behind my little piece about, you know, improving my German. You die with better German. I mean, my my German is so much better now. Well, but bye bye, you know. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, I hope you get a chance to uh, use your German now. Before I die. Exactly. Exactly. On that bright note, thank you so much, Lydia, for speaking with me. It was really a pleasure. Yes, it was a pleasure for me, too. Thank you, Kate. That was Lydia Davis. Her new collection of stories is called Our Strangers. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.